Good morning. We are continuing our series of lessons going through the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the reasons we just had that passage read is because I think of the logic of a lot of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is rooted in the idea that we were created by God in God's own image. And that has certain requirements that come with it. There's responsibilities that come with seeing another person as an image bearer of the creator, as someone who God created intentionally with human, uh, with humanity and with dignity and with value. And that value and dignity comes from God himself. Last week, we took a, a brief pause in going through the Sermon on the Mount to look at another passage that I think helps ground the logic of the Sermon on the Mount, which is where Jesus says that the greatest commands in all of Scripture, the greatest commands from God himself, are that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. And if you get those two things right, then everything else will fall into place. Again, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, so if you have your Bibles, by the way, turn now to Matthew chapter 5, um, we're going to see how the image of God, the value of each person, and loving your neighbor as yourself play a role in the way that Jesus addresses every one of these topics. Now, admittedly, we are about to get into some less comfortable topics. Um, we talked about anger as Jesus started this sermon off, and how uh, if you genuinely love your neighbor as yourself, and if you genuinely see them as someone who's created in the very image of God, then you're not going to murder them, uh, but you're also going to control your anger towards them. You're not going to insult them. You're not going to devalue them with your words and with your actions. You'll actually see them as someone that you are intended to love. And so Jesus gives some difficult teachings, but some important teachings on how to internalize some of the commands of the law of Moses about not murdering. You change your heart rather than just your hands. You change your heart rather than just your actions, and you begin to see someone else as a person created intentionally with divine value and worth. Well, today we're going to move on to the topic of adultery. And adultery, you know, is something that we— uh, for the most part, I think, know what it is, uh, you know, sleeping with someone that you're not married to. If you're married and you have sex with somebody else, that would be adultery. Or if someone else is married and you're not married to them and you have sex with them, that would be adultery. And we often think of adultery in those terms, and I think that that's, uh, that's all well and good. But what Jesus is going to do in this passage is he's going to give two surprising new definitions of adultery. He's going to call two things adultery that people had previously never thought of as adultery before. One of them is very internal, and the other one is, uh, is something that you would do with your actions. But he's going to define lust as adultery in the heart, and he's going to define even going through the process of divorce and marrying another person. Instead of just sleeping with another person, you divorce your spouse and marry another person, he's going to say that that still doesn't solve your problem of adultery. We're going to divide this up into two weeks, and we're going to look at lust this week and divorce next week. Uh, again, these are slightly uncomfortable topics, maybe more than slightly. These are very uncomfortable topics. And one of the reasons why is because the topics that Jesus touches on here they will touch the lives of pretty much everyone in here. There's two things I can pretty much guarantee right now. One of those is that in this room right now, there are people who lust. That's true. Uh, that's, there's no way that's not true. Anytime you get this many people in a room, lust is a problem. Uh, so that's a fact. 
And also, divorce has either personally or very closely touched the lives of probably just about everyone in this room. Uh, whether it is you yourself having gone through that, or someone you know, or your parents, or a sibling, or your children, divorce has touched so many lives. And what Jesus is going to talk about is something that will be um, personal, and it's something that can be difficult. And so we want to approach it with love and grace and sensitivity, but we also want to take very seriously the words of Jesus as we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount. So today what we're going to be talking about is lust. Lust is a problem. It's a huge problem in our world today. In fact, it's always been a problem. Um, it is, I think it has been a problem and taken different shapes and forms in different cultures and societies throughout time, but it has always been a problem at the root of the human condition. We want things we don't have, and we crave them, and we often think about them and fantasize about them, and so often that leads into actions designed to try to get those things. You know, in the, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, if you're talking about, like, adultery and the problems uh, that it, it causes— People have often tried to find ways around adultery, like to where they could still do what they want to do, but they don't technically call it adultery, because adultery is a sin, even in the Old Testament. As you read through it, you'll see different actions people take to try to get around it. One of those is polygamy. Basically, I want to sleep with someone who's not my wife. I know, I'll get a second wife, uh, or a third wife, or on and on down the line. You see different kings do this, even though they are explicitly, Deuteronomy 17, commanded not to do that. They do it. Um, you will see sometimes concubines as a way of like, I mean, that I, just coming up with a fancy word for adultery, but not calling it adultery, and saying, okay, you're not technically going to be my wife, but I'm still going to be able to sleep with you so that I can get what I want, but, uh, but I'm not going to call it adultery. Uh, you see different kings, and people do that from time to time. You even see a Levite do that in one story in the Old Testament. These are ways that people have come up with to basically commit adultery, but without calling it that. Uh, another way is prostitution. Uh, prostitution is something, and you might say, well, that's still adultery. Well, if you're reading the Old Testament and you're thinking about the way the ancient Israelites thought, a lot of times that actually wasn't considered adultery in their eyes. Um, adultery, we think of as pretty much any time you have sex with someone that you're not married to. If you're married and you have sex with someone else, that would be adultery. That's not often the way that it was thought of in ancient Israel. A woman who had sex with someone other than her husband, that would be adultery. But adultery was often seen as basically a property crime. Um, the wife is, belongs to a husband. And so if she sleeps with someone else, it's adultery. Or if anyone sleeps with her, it's adultery. But if a husband, say, sleeps with someone who's a prostitute, who's not married at all, it might not be a good moral act, but they wouldn't generally consider that adultery. Um, so just, for example, if you read the laws in the Old Testament about not committing adultery, most of them are about not having sex with your neighbor's wife or with someone else's wife. Um, they're not about not just having sex with someone you're not married to. Think for a second about uh, David with Bathsheba. When David committed adultery, uh, when David used his power to put Bathsheba in a position to where she was, in essence, forced to sleep with the king, um, he was condemned for that. But why did—remember the parable of Nathan and all of that? What was he condemned for? It was because he stole Uriah's wife. She was already married to another man. 
you read through that story, there's not really a word said about the fact that David had other wives. You know, it's like, like he, was, he committed adultery on them too, I would think. But that's not really the way a lot of ancient Israelites thought. So all of that is to say, adultery more so than we might realize was generally a female sin. And men could commit it, but it was also pretty easy for men to avoid it. Men would get excused for polygamy. Men would be excused for having concubines. Men would be excused for having prostitutes. Men could be excused for a lot of things, sleeping with someone who was unmarried, uh, as long as they were not engaged to somebody or already the wife of somebody else. Jesus sees a problem with that. Um, Jesus sees that, and he doesn't just say, okay, no, guys, cut it out. Even going to a prostitute or having a concubine or polygamy, that's all adultery too. I think that that is, and I think that you'll see that as you look through the teachings of Jesus and in the New Testament. But Jesus will also say, even you men who are lusting after these other women, you're already on the, on the road to adultery. In fact, your heart is already there. You have already committed adultery in the heart when that open, opens up. That was a shocking statement. Like, that was something where you know, it's kind of hard to commit adultery as a man in ancient Israel. Jesus made it very, very easy. Jesus redefined the term so that it was something where people began to look internally to ask themselves, am I a person who has the heart of an adulterer? Am I someone who is already doing that? Jesus didn't uh, keep with the gender norms or the gender stereotypes about uh, the sin or the property or whatever. Jesus says that even men who haven't even touched another woman can still be considered an adulterer. Now, as we think about adultery, uh, and particularly lust, because that's what Jesus says. I'll, I'll read the passage here, Matthew 5, 27 and 28. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. All right, now you say that, and most men are like, okay, good, I can do that, you know? Uh, I can still sleep around some, and uh, I can still lust all I want, but, uh, but I will not sleep with a married woman. Um, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus takes the idea of adultery and defines it as lust, at least in the heart. Uh, we'll see that there is perhaps a difference between physical adultery and heart adultery, but what Jesus is saying is your heart is already there. Your heart is the same as an adulterer. Uh, when you think about the word lust, that could probably conjure up a lot of different images in our minds, and really, depending on when you were born and where you live and what culture and, and time you live in, uh, lust would be engaged in, in a lot of different ways. I think it's pretty much universal to every time in culture, but, you know, we, we have iPhones with pornography now. That's something that you go back 50 years, and when people are thinking about lust, they not, might not be thinking that. They might be thinking of, of uh, Playboy magazines or something. You go back 50 years before that, and people, if they think about lust, are probably thinking more about things like uh, covetousness. As a matter of fact, uh, that's if you read the Ten Commandments, Jesus quotes one of them where it says, you shall not commit adultery. There's another one that says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's possessions or your neighbor's property. That word covet right there in the Greek Old Testament 
is the same word as lust that Jesus uses right here. So he's actually not giving that new of a teaching. Uh, covetousness has always been condemned. And that's what a lust is. It's, it's this craving for something else that instead of fighting against it, turning your head and going back your own way, you begin to feed that craving. And sometimes that's hard not to do. In fact, I think we live in a culture and in a society that very much makes, I mean, makes tremendous amount of money, and uh, so many ideas are based off of feeding lust, feeding covetousness for other people. Uh, if you were to look at the most visited websites on the internet today, you'd be surprised that in the top 10 of them, you might see some ones like, uh, like YouTube or Google or Netflix, but you're also going to see some that uh, are not just those. Uh, you'll see pornography sites. I mean, that's, it is very common, and it is a major problem. Like I said at the beginning, there's, there's no way that it's not a problem for some of us in this room right here. Uh, it is a very real thing that people, Christian and non-Christian, struggle with. Um, and we live in a society that feeds on it. I think we also live in a society that has a lot of confusion about sexual ethics and what exactly to do with lust. I think on the one hand, we live in a society that wants us to view sex as basically meaningless. Like, it's just a fun thing to do. You don't need to have commitment. You don't need to have marriage. It's just two bodies getting together and whatever, you know? It's like eating a meal. It's like, like, if you do it on a first date, if you do it with someone who you're just friends with, if you do it with someone who, uh, who you have no intention of having a long-term relationship, that's hookup culture. And that's a very real part of the world that we live in. Uh, hookup culture and Tinder and uh, pornography only fans, which is basically a way for people to get money with pornography like in their own house without without you know having to go and become a porn star or whatever uh, there are so many things in our culture right now that are designed to feed lust uh, to make money off of lust and to celebrate lust all of those are rooted in the idea that your body and who you have sex with and all of that is basically just a meaningless thing, and anyone who attaches more significance to it than that is just binding their religious ideas on you, and we need sexual freedom rather than sexual restraint. So that's part of our culture, but that doesn't tell the whole story of our culture, because we also have part of our culture that genuinely, I believe, holds sex as something sacred and separate and unique, um, and that's good. We should be happy about that, but it becomes pretty clear that we don't view sex as meaningless no matter how hard we try to. I think we live in a culture that wants to view sex as meaningless, but you just can't quite do it. Um, if you remember a couple of years ago, it became pretty popular, the, the Me Too movement, um, where women were given voice to speak out against sexual assault, sexual pressure that was put upon them, uh, sexual harassment in the workplaces, people who had power, who used it to exploit those who were inferior or underneath them for their sexual pleasure or gratification. There were some very high-profile names who ended up getting prison sentences because things came out. A lot of good was done during the, the Me Too movement. Um, some people were emphatically against it because certainly like any movement you can find flaws and abuses that that's going to happen uh, but by and large 
you had a culture that was saying, no, sex matters, and you should treat people with sexual respect. You should treat people with more dignity than we have for a very long time in this world and in this culture. And I think that's a good thing. I think that demonstrates that even in a world that wants to say sex is meaningless, it still has something sacred and valuable. Just think about it for a, sec uh, for a second. It might be rude to insult somebody or to, uh, to, to make a mean comment about a person at the workplace. And you might not like that, but it probably happens. Sometimes people are rude to each other. Um, if you do that about someone sexually or about a sexual part of their body, it's no longer just rude or distasteful. It's sexual harassment. And it can be a much bigger problem as soon as sex becomes a part of it. Or uh, a boss who he might uh, tell, you know, people, his underlings, uh, the people who work for him, uh, that they need to work late hours or they need to work on a weekend. And he's telling them what to do with their time and with their body. They have to show up at work. They have to do this. Or they could potentially be fired for that. And you know what? That's a bummer. But if the boss starts telling you to do things sexually with your body, then all of a sudden it's a crime. Then it's something that he could be fired for. Why is that? Well, because we recognize, as much as we want to say sex is meaningless, it actually isn't. It's different than other things. A boss telling you to, to stay a couple hours late versus a boss telling you to perform a sexual favor, very different things. None, neither of them are good, but they're, they're different categories because sex is something sacred and different. It's unique. Um, if someone tries to pressure you into sex, we recognize that's a big problem. But, you know, we, we, there's a statement, uh, no means no, right? No means no. And we often say that when we're talking about sexual things. And I think that's good. That's true. You shouldn't try, if someone says no, end of story. You should not try to pressure them sexually. However, no means no um, in virtually every other area of life doesn't really. Like, I mean, I guess it does to an extent, but if I want someone to go on a hike with me and they say, no, I'm too tired, I'm going to say, oh, come on, you can do it. And they say, no, I, I, I got a big day the next day. I'm like, I'll be tough. And like, I would have no problem with trying to pressure someone or to try a food that they don't want to try. Oh, come on, no, try it. No, I don't think so. No, you, you, might, you might like it. You don't know. And like, we try to pressure people to do things all the time, and it's not a major problem, right? I mean, maybe it'd be irritating, but, uh, but it's not like a big moral problem. If someone doesn't want to have sex with you and you keep pestering and trying to pressure them, then it is a problem. It's a moral problem. That's something that's very highly frowned upon. That's something that uh, could lead to criminal charges. If you use your, I mean, especially a male who's bigger and stronger, if you're alone with a woman and you won't accept her no and you keep pressuring and pressuring, even if you get a reluctant yes, you've not done a moral thing. You have used your strength and perhaps fear to ignore her and to pressure her into something that she didn't want to do. I mean, that's, that's a, that is wrong. That is sinful. That is immoral. And the more that we give voice to people who are being pressured like that, I think the better. But notice how you can pressure people into some things and in other things, like sexual things, it's a big no-no. Why? Because sex is different. I guess that's the point. Sex is different. We want to live in a culture that says it's meaningless, but we also live in a culture that recognizes that there's something different and sacred about it. And I think that as the church, generally we're not able to change culture all that much. 
Um, we can try to do things here and there, and we can try to, to, to make some positive impacts, but we're probably not going to change cultural trends. I think what we should do is celebrate when our views are in line with culture, like treating sex as something different and sacred and special, something that shouldn't be ever, ever, ever forced or pressured upon another person. Sex is something that should be enjoyed as a gift from God among willing parties who are married to each other. And I think that's a good, healthy sexual ethic uh, that if the rest of the world adopted, we'd live in a much better world. And a lot of the sin and a lot of the pain and a lot of the heartbreak that people experience now would be done away with. Uh, I I think we should try to find those commonalities and celebrate them. However, when it comes to the differences, we're probably not going to get everyone to agree you should only have sex with the person that you're married to and you should wait until marriage. But what do we do? Well, read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus doesn't say you're going to change culture. What he says is you're going to be a light in the midst of darkness. You're going to be a city that's set on the hill. You're going to be the salt of the earth. You're going to be different than the culture around you. So in some ways, yes, celebrate it. I think with the Me Too movement, there's a lot that Christians can get on board with there, and we should, absolutely. I think when it comes to hookup culture and sex being meaningless, that is something that is wrong, that Christians ought to abstain from. We ought to be a light in the midst of darkness, trying to... to uh, proclaim the fact that sex actually does matter and that it's an important sacred bond between people given as a gift from God that should be enjoyed, but there's certain contexts and ways in which you enjoy it. You enjoy it in marriage when you've made a lifelong loving commitment to this other person, and you enjoy it when you're able to have children from it and you want to raise those children. I mean, if, if you try to remove sex from the idea of family and commitment, then you end up with a lot of pain, a lot of heartbreak, you end up with more needs for abortions and things like that. Like, all of that stuff rises when we don't take sex seriously. So, I think as uh, the church, we're probably not going to change our culture, but what we can do is we can change ourselves, and we can try to live separate than our culture. We can try to be that light that's on a hill in those areas of disagreement. And I want to quickly discuss two ways that I think we ought to do that. Um, number one, I think we need to we need to make absolutely certain that our churches, that our congregation, that our community is a place that is the safest place in the world, especially for young women uh, or for women. Uh, for people who are coming here, they should be able to find an escape from a world full of sexual pressure. And if they find it here, then they should be heard, they should have safety in speaking about it, and they should be uh, taken very seriously when if there's ever an allegation or something like that. The reality is, along with the Me Too movement, there was the start of what was called the Church Too movement, and a lot of people discussed things that happened even in their own churches when they were growing up, where maybe it was an older man, maybe it was a minister, maybe it was someone who was respected, treated them in a way that made them very uncomfortable, or treated them in a way that was just flat out sexually exploitative or wrong. And when they said something, it was brushed off, it was swept under the rug, or it was ignored. That should never ever happen among us. And so I want to suggest that if something like that has happened to you, please do not be afraid to speak up. 
we need to hear it. And I would want to suggest if you hear something like that, you take it with utmost seriousness. You do not sweep it under the rug. You do not fall into the trap that so many have fallen into, trying to preserve the reputation of the church at the cost of someone that you should love and care about who was created in God's image. Let's make sure that that never happens here. Openness, transparency, and sexual purity, sexual, uh, the, the ability to speak freely about things like that without condemnation, especially of the victim or particularly of the victim, uh, is something that should be promoted in a healthy church environment, and I want to make sure that we have that here. Um, so, number one is uh, make sure that as a church, we don't, those who are higher up don't have immunity from the teachings of Jesus when it comes to sexual purity, but they treat people who are uh, members here and who are female here with utmost respect and that uh, will be held accountable if uh, otherwise is done. Secondly, I would want to suggest a way that we stand out in the midst of our culture, and this is going to be personal, and this is going to be something that's going to put a challenge on many of us in here, um, that we actually take seriously the words of Jesus and try to rid lust from our lives. What I mean is if you struggle with pornography, you give up pornography, even if it's at a very difficult and painful cost. Uh, what I mean is if there is someone at your workplace who you recognize more and more that you're coveting or that you're wanting or that you're lusting over, and that person's not your spouse, then maybe you need to sever that relationship. Maybe you need to spend some time away from that person. You need to focus your energy and your efforts back on your spouse than on another person. If you're having communication online or through text message or whatever with someone who's not your spouse and you find yourself growing in your appreciation of that person or you find yourself liking that person more and more, you find yourself growing attracted to that person, then it's time to break off some of those communications and it's time to reroute your commitments and your allegiance to your spouse. Um, one of the problems that I think sometimes we have had with passages like this, and I know I've heard sermons like this, is we read a passage where Jesus tells men, don't lust. And then the preacher gets up and tells the girls, wear modest clothes so the men don't lust. And you know what? Modesty's good. We need to take modesty seriously. I, I, I think that's a good thing to do. However, this is not a passage about what girls wear. This is a passage about men. This is a passage directly written to males who are lusting after women and telling them not to. And you know what? You are not a slave to your eyes. And you're not a slave to your desires and to your lusts. It doesn't matter what a girl is wearing. Jesus is calling on you to have the self-control self and the accountability and the responsibility to take ownership of who you are and what you look at and what you think about and what you feed yourself and to say, no, I'm not going to objectify this person created in the image of God. I'm not going to objectify the neighbor that I'm supposed to love as myself. I'm going to treat this person with utmost respect and honor as a sister in Christ or as just a fellow image bearer of the creator. Um, it is easy to blame culture for being sexually permissive uh, or uh, to blame uh, TV for uh, having too much, you know, sexual appeal that we can't, you know, look away, or for pornography being too easily available, or, or for women wearing uh, clothes that we don't think they ought to wear, or like you can go down the list of placing the blame on everyone else. But what Jesus does 
is he looks at the men and he says, it's time for you to have some accountability. And it's time for you to make sure that you're not the ones lusting. And so as we carry on this lesson, I want to make sure that that's my emphasis as well. Uh, don't try to blame other people. Look at yourself and ask what you can do differently. And what Jesus suggests to do is, uh, is tough. It's in verse 29 and 30 where he says, and if your right eye causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Because it's better for you to be blind and lame as you enter into the kingdom of God than it is for you to have your eyes and have your hands and to be cast into Gehenna. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, with pretty much every one of these that we read through, there is some hyperbole. Uh, you know, in the one about anger, Jesus says, you'll go before the Sanhedrin court if you call your brother uh, a fool or something, you know, or, or, uh, or Raka, or I guess empty head. Uh, literally, you're probably not going to go to the Sanhedrin court. And literally, the first few hundred years of Christianity, we didn't see a bunch of eyeless, handless Christians walking around. Uh, I think people back then and people now should have the ability to understand that Jesus is not literally calling for amputation. But I do think he's calling for making drastic changes where they need to be made even if it requires self-sacrifice and uh, even if it requires pain in order to do that. What I mean is there are things that we could probably all do that would help us in this endeavor to live out the teaching of Jesus. Um, I'll just give a couple of them as we start to wind up. Number one, and I mentioned this one earlier, uh, counseling. Counseling probably could be helpful if you have tried for years to break an addiction to pornography or to lust and you failed time and time again, maybe talk to somebody about it. Maybe talk to a professional who can help you and who can give you some of the resources you might need to help overcome this. Uh, number two, I would say confession would be a really helpful thing. It's really hard to stop a sin that you're the only one who knows about. And the fact that this is such a private sin means we often carry it on our own. We don't talk to other people about it. We're ashamed to mention it to other people, even though the people you mention it to very well may be struggling with the same thing. But we keep it on our own, and we rely on our own grit to overcome. And you know how good we are at relying on our own grit as men? not as good as we think. Uh, we will tend to fail time and time again, but having honest, trusting relationships with other members in the church where you can talk to each other about these things, you can encourage each other, you can send each other a message, you can call each other at nighttime to see how you've done throughout the day, but having some accountability, having some confession would be helpful as well. I would say having some amputation. Uh, maybe not of a literal eye or a little literal hand, but maybe of a smartphone so that you're not walking around with pornography like within seconds, anytime you want it, right in your pocket all day long. If that's a struggle for you, imagine being addicted to a drug and just walking around with it in your pocket all day long and telling yourself, don't use it, don't use it, don't use it. You know what? You're probably going to use it. Uh, maybe be honest with yourself. Know your strengths and your weaknesses. Know what you can and cannot have on you. Know what you can and can't have access to. And even if it's really hard to do that, even if you think, how could I get through my day without an iPhone or a smartphone? Well, maybe see. And, and I bet I, it's very possible that you'll find other benefits to that as well. Like all of a sudden I have five more hours each day. How did that happen? You know, uh, they tend to consume a lot of our time and effort and energy. Maybe you don't need it. Um, 
maybe uh, with where your computer is in your house, if that's a problem for you, uh, redesign the room so that other people can see what's on your computer if they're in the room with you or while you're using it so that you're not over in a corner by yourself able to see it and no one else can. That might be something to consider. There are also some apps that could be helpful. Um, there's one of them called Bark. Bark, uh, you can look up the Bark app, and uh, it helps parents control what is on the phones on their phone plans, so especially if you're concerned about your children, which by the way, probably should be. Uh, this, it's, it's common, uh, and it's very, very prevalent. Uh, it's in fact, uh, you know, it, it's just very common. So uh, it's something you should be aware of, and uh, that can help you control that. Uh, being the bad parent who doesn't let your kids have access to uh, unfiltered internet in your pockets at all time actually doesn't make you a bad parent. And so that might be something to uh, consider also. You know, it's, it's unpopular and your kids might struggle with it. They might be really mad at you for it. But I would familiarize yourself with some of the research of like Jonathan Haidt at NYU. Does some really good stuff on the, the effects of social media and, uh, and technology on our youth. Uh, maybe say no. <laughs> maybe not till you're 16 or, you know, whatever. But, uh, but being willing to make that difficult call could be helpful if you're concerned about what your children are saying. Uh, there's also an app called uh, Covenant Eyes. Um, basically what that does is it records what you're looking at online and on your phone, like the websites you go to, and it will send it to an accountability partner that you have, and they can see it and they can check up on you, and it helps just with a little bit more awareness so that you're not always alone uh, and by yourself. Uh, but there are things you can do. It's not hopeless, uh, but it is something that today, now, we need to make some changes in the way that we live, especially if this is a problem we find ourselves continually going back to. And remember, we are created in God's image. You were created in God's image, and so is that person that you're lusting after. So is that person on the screen. So is that person at the workplace. So is that person that you're texting. Male and female are created in the image of God. Lust denies the God-given humanity and dignity of another person, and they become an object whose sole purpose in this world is to satisfy your own desires, and that's not what God created them to be. It denies their God-given worth, it denies the God-given value of another person, and it turns that person into a tool. Don't do that. Strive daily to not do that. When people have done that, it has led to actually people becoming objects for the desires of others. It's led to sex trafficking. As a matter of fact, if you get on pornography websites and you watch long enough, you're probably going to find people who are in that situation not because they want to be, uh, but legitimate, true evil and crimes have happened to put them there for your personal desire. Don't blame other people when you're the one who's supporting it. So, if we can help you uh, this morning, if you need to make changes, then talk to somebody. If you want to talk to some of our elders, if you want to talk to a trusted brother or, uh, or sister in Christ about some of these problems that you have been uh, constantly enduring and going through, please do that. This is, this is a family. We all have our sins. And if we try to keep them all to ourselves all the time, we'll probably never get over them. 
So if we can help you uh, overcome, please let that be known. And if there's anyone here who would like to commit yourselves to the Lord, if there's anyone who would like to become a Christian, we pray that you would let that be known as well uh, while we stand and as we sing.